There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. Welcome to HBCU 468, brought to you by ESPN's The Undefeated. This weekly podcast looks at life inside and outside of sports from the unique perspective of the Roden Fellows. Handpicked students from six historically black colleges and universities. They're young, they're smart, and they are living one of the most unique experiences in American higher education. I'm Bill Roden, and here are this week's Roden Fellows. I'm Kyla Wright from Hampton University. I'm Paul Holston from Howard University. Hello, everybody. I'm coming to you from the ESPN studio in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, there's been so much happening uh, in sports this week. Uh, the NBA season has started. Obviously, football's in full bloom. The Major League Baseball playoffs are underway. I'm, I'm mourning for Dusty Baker and the Nationals. Uh, the U.S. men's soccer team is so happy there's so much going on because they failed to qualify for the World Cup for the first time since 1986. Uh, but the national anthem protests have simmered a little bit, but the issue is still red hot. Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, said that he was just playing the bad guy and trying to deflect attention from his players when he said that any player who didn't stand for the national anthem would not play in the game. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell uh, and his team at the NFL headquarters had to correct a statement made by President Donald Trump to the effect that the NFL is demanding that players stand during the national anthem. Goodell said that he's working with players, owners, and the NFL Players Association to come up with a solution that, that will address social inequities without sending the wrong message. And, of course, we're all kind of debating about, well, what's the wrong message? Uh, to a lot of people, the wrong message has been that kneeling or sitting during the anthem is disrespectful to the country and to military personnel. The fellows and I really wanted to hear from a uh, black veteran on the issue. Our own Paul Holston uh, served in the Army for five years uh, before going to Howard. And we're on the line with former U.S. Marine veteran uh, Ron Terrell. Thank you so much, man, for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Hey, Ron, let's start from the beginning. You've been seeing these NFL protests, and you've heard the narrative. What do the protests mean to you, and how, how did you be, first take it when Colin Kaepernick uh, knelt during the National Anthem last year? I did not take offense to it. I understood what he was kneeling for, and I, I think it's a peaceful protest, and those are his First Amendment rights, and that's what I, as a veteran, that's what I went to war for. So I, I had no issues with it. Since when does kneeling become a sign of disrespect? Mm. People kneel to pray. Disrespect mm. would be taking a flag and lighting it on fire, mm. putting a mm. flag on the ground and running on it. Mm. That's disrespect. Mm. What that man is saying is there are issues that need to be addressed. This is my way of voicing it out. Has this affected how you watch or whether you watch the NFL? Oh, no. I mean, the Bears being a terrible team has affected my life. No, I, I still watch it because I've always had a deep admiration for anybody that's socially conscious, mm -hmm. particularly athletes, because they always get enough publicity for other things. And I'm encouraged when I see those young men go out there and, and whether they're locking arms, holding hands, kneeling, they understand that there are some deep, 
underlying issues that are affecting our communities, and it needs to be addressed. I agree as well, uh, especially on my end. When I first saw the Colin Kaepernick kneel, one, he already stated even after he did it what the reason why he was doing it. He wasn't doing it to disrespect the flag. He was there to raise an issue, and that was police brutality and discrimination and other things that are affecting people of color. You know, even for me, in my short time in the military, we all signed the oath, swore to protect the country, foreign and domestic. But before being a soldier, I was black first. I was black before, I was black during, and I'm going to be black after. Just for him to use that platform, I think, was, you know, courageous. And it doesn't matter whether you're a normal citizen, you're a veteran, active service member, because those three and other variations of black people, they are affected in this one way or another. Hey, Ron, did you go to the uh, Marines right out of high school? Why, why did you join the Marines? I did go right out of high school. For me, not coming from a military background or family, I thought everything was the Army. I didn't know the difference between the different branches. So I just knew that after high school, I wasn't mature enough to go to college. I knew I needed some discipline. And I always had that fire in me. I liked group sports, teamwork, and stuff like that. But I needed an an adrenaline rush. Hmm. So I went to the Army guy's office. Nobody was there. Then the next one was the Navy. Nobody was there. And the Air Force, nobody was there. And on my way out the door... This crazy Marine jumped out of his office and started yelling at me and telling me that I didn't have what it takes to make it in the Marine Corps. Why would you join anything else other than the best, et cetera, et cetera. And this went on for a good five minutes. I'm still trying to figure out who is this guy yelling at me. But I tell you what, I ended up signing my name on that dotted line before I left the office. Wow. Did you come out a different person? Well, I never lost my identity, uh, and, and that's common what you see when young folks go into the military. They lose their identity because they'll go there and then they'll get programmed. Mm. I don't think that happened to me. I, I think leaders are born. I mean, you're, you're either born a leader or you're not, but you have to be trained to become an effective leader. Mm. And I think that's what the Marine Corps did for me. Mm. Seems like what's lacking in all this is vision. I mean, I think that Colin Kaepernick, I think every conversation we should start with thanking him for beginning this dialogue because without him taking a knee and having the courage to do that, we wouldn't we wouldn't be here. Now the question becomes, you know, the NFL is going to be meeting with players association, players, because they're trying to figure out how do we how do we get out of this, you know, gracefully and how do we go forward. If you were on a on a football team and you were asked to come to New York and meet with the commissioner or if you were the commissioner or if you were DeMora Smith at the Players Association, you know, what do you think is the way forward? What I think these owners and the commissioner are forgetting is that leadership is a position of servitude. There would be no NFL or NBA without the players. Right. Therefore, Mm -hmm. you have to listen to them and figure out what they want to see done in order to make everybody happy. Obviously, everybody's not going to be happy. I mean, that just comes with the territory. But I'm pretty sure if the owners, the commissioners, got with these players and say, hey, we're going to dedicate these games to these causes. We're going to set up some sort of workshops with policemen throughout the city. We're going to wear a certain uniform on for this game to represent such and such. I think the players would respond well to that. I mean, it's just a start, and obviously you build upon it from there. 
this is Tyler from Hampton. Speaking on that with the owners as far as the way that they're addressing the issue, I personally can speak for the Detroit Lions. That's my home city. The owner of the team, Martha Ford, she met with the the team, and she, in a way, kind of asked slash told them to stop kneeling, but her proposal to them was if you do stop kneeling, she said that each individual player can tell her organization or social issue that they're passionate about and she would donate money to each organization in her name. Hmm. So that was kind of her solution to the kneeling situation in Detroit at all of our games. How, how do you feel, Ron, when, you, when you're at a game and you see the National Anthem? One of my things is that they should just stop playing it. If you want to stop politicizing an event, stop playing the National Anthem uh, before a game. You know, we don't do it before concerts. Or before you know, you go to dinner. How do you? How would you feel about that? Uh, I'm sort of indifferent to it because they didn't always play it in front of the games. I think that is a recent right. phenomenon. Right. Maybe within the last mm-hmm. 20, 30 years, right. they started playing mm-hmm. it before games. So if they stopped playing it, it, it wouldn't matter to me. But if they do play it, it's good. You know, because I'm all about patriotism, camaraderie. Well, I'll ask you a question also about the kneeling issue. How do you feel about the fact that Kaepernick, he knelt over a year ago, and now it's just now coming to the forefront, and now players want to kneel and people want to speak out about the issue. How do you feel about the fact that people took so long to kind of back him or back the freedom of speech (laughs) for this kneeling issue? You know, I, I can't judge because each man has the right to take care of his family. That is his ultimate purpose, and I think a lot of those players saw what happened to Colin, how he got blackballed from the league, and I think they were scared. But I think the torch that set this haystack afire is what Donald Trump got involved, and I think that just kind of was a straw that broke the camel's back. But when you're doing something socially conscious and it's unpopular, you have to move at your own pace because – you you have to look and see what's at risk for you. I commend Colin for being so brave to do that, to be the first person to do that in the NFL. But, you know, there's other socially conscious athletes. LeBron, when uh, the gentleman got choked in New York, he was out there with the shirt said, I can't breathe. Yeah. You know, I, I respect that. Mm-hmm. And then dating back to Jim Brown and Muhammad Ali, two mm-hmm. role models of mine. Hey, uh- let me ask you that. How do you overcome fear? I mean, in the Marines and probably in any service, you go in and, and you're going to face battle. And, and I, I know people say, it was, you know, you're born fearless. But I think everybody's got to overcome fear at some point. What I used to tell my Marines before we would go out on any mission, respect fear, mm. but don't succumb to it. So understand what your idea of fear is, then you overcome it. I like to echo off what he said. Um, I think the best quote that I could summarize when it comes to fear, and I, and I learned this at Howard, but I mean, it's just it just added what I learned in the military as well. It's from Kwame Ture who said, "The secret of life is to have no fear. It's the only way to function." So, whatever, whether it's post-military, trying to figure out post-graduation, it's just really just stepping on stepping out on faith. And just whatever comes in life comes, because at the end of the day, it was designated for you in your life. You know, we all have a purpose in how we go about things. You know, Ron went to the Marines. I went to the Army. I'm not going to knock him for going to the Marines. <laughs> <but it's> okay. <laughs> at the end of the day, 
I think fear fear is a part of life. I think fear just teaches you lessons. You know, it's just in the same respect as failure as well. So although Colin might not have expected how this was going to go, this is where we're at today, and this is the conversation that is continuing to be had. Hey, Ryan, uh, thank you so much, man. This has really been great, very insightful. Uh, thank you for all your service. Uh, thanks for everything you're doing now, and uh, thanks for being on the show. It's really been it's really been tremendous. Thank you so much for inviting me. We'll go on a short break, and when we come back, we'll discuss social media. If you're just now tuning in, you're listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. I'm Bill Roden, and I'm here with my cohorts, Kyla Wright from Hampton and Paul Holston from Howard. Uh, we're we're going to switch gears, moving away from the anthem protest to social media. More than 150 million people use Twitter daily. Facebook boasts about 1.86 billion users per month. So it's really no wonder that media companies want to capitalize on these spaces because this is where a lot of potential readers and subscribers live. Everybody's become aware of the perils of posting erroneous or salacious information. And and those of us who are journalists have to be especially careful because the line between personal and professional spaces is murky. On the line with us today is Amber McKenzie, a digital producer for the Steve Harvey Show. Uh, Amber, thank you so much for giving up some of your time to be with us. Of course. Thank you for having me, Bill. By the way, I guess we should say that Amber is the younger sister of our producer, Aaron Mathewson. Let's talk about the social media. Have you had to make any adjustments to social media? Is there like a social media policy at WBLS? Yeah, we definitely have a social media policy. And, you know, we we go through it and lay it out before you even begin your position. We're a radio station, so we have lots of artists that there might be news that comes through, but we have them in a concert coming up. So you just kind of have to pick and choose what's the best way to represent your brand and not make them feel any type of way uh, because you need the relationship at the end of the day. You're you're sort of in more in a celebrity space where there are a lot Mm -hmm. of celebrities come through BLS sort of every day. How is social media used? Just typically. We use Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, in addition to the actual website. Every day we try to come up with a different way to bring them in through social because, you know, everything is content and you don't want to have the same content going out. So, you know, they come in and we'll live stream a video on Facebook while we're tweeting quotes out from it and taking pictures to post on Instagram simultaneously. And if anything funny happens, that's what Snapchat is for. Or we can use uh, filters. We get people to do, you know, funny things. And if you loosen them up, you can get them to talk about some of the more personal things that are going on because fans want to hear that. So you want to try to, you know, ease them into it and let them know that it's okay to, you know, let the fans in as well because that's that's the whole point of having them there. Everyone just wants to get to know them. So we try to get it out in the best ways possible and present the artist as the best way possible. But, you know, we also have to get out the news. So there's no shade if we talk the news. You know, this is what's going on. But, you know, we never take a position. We just are there to report it. Hey, Amber, this is Paul from Howard. In today's social realm, it seems like, you know, reporting via social is becoming just as important as reporting, whether it's radio or print. What did they tell you during your time in undergrad? Did they still tell you guys to separate, like create a professional account or be mindful in using whatever accounts you have? You know, I'm about to feel so old saying this, but social media, 
was not a real thing when I was in college to the extent that it is now. So I remember my freshman year, Facebook was literally at Spelman, is that correct? That's when it was. Yes, at Spelman. And Facebook had literally just started. It was only open to a few colleges. Spelman had just got it. So no one really knew the extent of like crazy photos or what tweeting or saying a comment can do and how long it lasts. Like that didn't cross your mind. So I also got my master's in writing. I went to the new school uh, here in New York. And Mm. while I was in grad school, I was also the associate editor at a double XL magazine. And we each had to take a turn running the Twitter account and you just kind of learn how to make a voice for yourself and then you see the destruction that happens with couples and everything else on social media. So I really think I'm learning what I can and cannot do literally on an hour-by-hour basis. You see rules with social media are literally changing every day. Facebook changes its algorithm at least once a month. This is Kyla from Hampton. So now that you have the experience with social media in your career, what advice would you give to college students now using social media? It's really more up to you and what your employer dynamic is like. My personal slash professional page is one and the same. And lately, I can't lie, I've been off Twitter because there's so many things I want to say and just seeing what's happening around, I'm like, let me not say anything at all because I want to make sure I have a job tomorrow. Mm. So going forward, honestly, yeah, I would say make a, a personal page and a professional page, but know that at some point they will get intertwined because people are going to know hey, this is her, it's just two different accounts. But also, in terms of breaking news and getting information out, honestly, I go to social media and Twitter specifically before I turn on the TV because I know my feed will be flooded with breaking news, this happened, or, you know, Rose McGowan was trending, and I was like, why, of all reasons, is she trending at 7 in the morning? And, you know, you find out she's been banned from Twitter for voicing her opinion. So now there's the question of the First Amendment. Mm. Like, where do you draw the line? So I get a lot of my sources from there, and then it's just kind of figuring out, like, with a new regime in office, uh, I think we are all trying to figure it out together on what's acceptable and what's not. If you're a freelancer, you can say anything Mm -hmm. you want. Maybe you won't get hired. Maybe you will. You know, but when you join a corporation, are there sacrifices going forward when you join an organization in terms of, what you may feel and how you express what you feel. You know, there's a lot of days when I'm just so stressed out and angry and I just want to go vent on Twitter, but I know that probably my boss and my boss's boss and my boss's boss's boss are all following me and I can't do it. Or even, you know, someone on the outside might be offended and call my place of employment and be like, I was really offended by what she said. And then they'll come and talk to me and, you know, it will be like another social media policy. Now we have to look at new rules because new situations are coming up. So I definitely feel like I am uh, censoring myself and my ways of expression being affiliated with a major company. When we see these various suspensions and firings and, you know, just just like you just just happened, uh, the the woman you said who's been banned from Twitter. Is that sort Mm -hmm. of a shot across the bow to all journalists? You know, you know, I mean, does that have an immediate impact on you and how you use social media? You know, one of the things I mentioned, you're in in an interesting position because Colin Kaepernick's girlfriend works at your station. What adjustments have you had to make? Um, Honestly, haven't really had to make any adjustments. It's just, you know, tweeting or posting business as usual. If Mm -hmm. there is a protest going on, you know, in 
in Colin's name, you know, hey, we'll let everyone know there's a protest going on, just like if there were a protest with Tony Romo for whatever random reason. You know, we would report that as well because we know we have Cowboys fans paying attention. So we definitely, um, I wouldn't say we've changed anything. It's really just business as usual. This is Paul. So how do you try to remain objective when scandals or things that, you know, you personally might have, you know, some type of opinion about. How do you sort of remain objective in just reporting? I've learned to think in the mind of the brand. So if I am on social media and I see something about Miley Cyrus and I really feel a type of way, but I know that the brand, the brand that I'm with wouldn't say anything that I say, so that's when I might go to my personal Twitter and be like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is going on. But on the company account, this is, you know, once again, just information. Here you go. Or maybe you don't cover it at all. But fake news is apparently a thing. So, yeah, you got to just watch how but you tweet out and what you tweet out. But even on your personal page, I mean, there's really nothing There's really nothing private, right? I mean, you could say, oh, it's my personal page. Can that become public? I mean, can somebody just simply cut and paste and, you know, say, hey, listen, this is what Amber McKenzie said? Yeah, they definitely can. I mean, that's what screenshots are for. You know, I can put something up and take it down, but in the 37 seconds it was live, 27 people took screenshots of it. And so now you see something I said that maybe I didn't want you to. So it's going to live forever. And even if you have the personal or professional page, once again, you can have them, but it doesn't necessarily make a difference because people are going to know that they're the same person. It's just branded differently (laughs) and honestly i'm just saying this from what's happened in the last week with with jamel at espn just watching that i'm like dang i don't know what i can and cannot say so i'm just gonna say i woke up and had a bagel this morning because anything past that (laughs) might be offensive what kind of bagel (laughs) (laughs) sesame seed and then it's like well why sesame and not poppy and i'm like whoa it's not that deep um even that's not controversial Right, right. Exactly. Well, so then that raises the question, is there such thing as the activist journalist anymore? Uh, How do you express outrage or or does it depend on your role in, in your company? I am very vocal about my stand about Black Lives Matter and police brutality and the um, NFL protests that are going on. I'm pro-freedom, fight the power, public enemy, like, let's get it going. That's just who I am, and I don't feel like I'm in a place that's going to chastise me for it. But then again, you see um, the woman at CBS who was fired for saying that she didn't have sympathy uh, for the victims in Las Vegas. And wow, that's a horrible thing to say. That was done on her personal private time, on her private page, and she lost her job over it. So mm. it's just kind of there. there is no line anymore. Like literally the last seven days have taught me there is no line. <laughs> That's not a blurred line, no line. Uh, right. Yeah. Our guest has been uh, Amber McKenzie. She's the uh, digital producer for the Steve Harvey Show. Before we, we let you go, I think you've really put this in perspective in that there are certain things that we're going to talk about in my living room. Now, I happen to be a columnist. People like me were were sort of paid for informed opinion. And even then, there can't be a big disparity between what I write as part of my job and what I tweet. You know, so that that's one thing. But I think maybe we're moving into a point where we meet in each other's living rooms. <laughs> that may be the only safe space if you really want to be careful and clear and self-assured. You, you, you say these things 
in the privacy of home or your living room or or a meeting that you hold, you know what I'm saying, as opposed to using public media. I think, yeah, the best place is to meet in your living room, but even then you still have to be careful. What we've learned from Kevin Hart is even if you meet in private, it might still get out to the public. So I don't know anymore because you think that things are in sacred space where you can be open and express your thoughts and opinions, but then they get twisted and turned into something else and get out easily. You know, everything literally is with the click of a button these days. Mm -hmm. Um, And the button only has to be on your cell phone. Yeah. Well, Kevin Hart, that's Hollywood. But (laughs) Hey, Amber, this is, this has really been great. Uh, Our guest has been Amber McKenzie. She's the uh, digital producer for the Steve Harvey Show, and the younger sister of Aaron Matthewson. But, Amber, this has really been great. Thank you so much. Really, really deeply appreciate it. Thank you so much. No, thank you, guys. This was really good. Thank you. That's all the time we've got for the show today. But before we close out, Kyla and Paul will leave you with some thoughts to consider. Kyla leads off. This past week, I competed in the Miss Hampton University Scholarship Pageant, the biggest pageant on campus. Seeing the hard work and dedication that myself and seven other young women put into the competition truly showed me the relevance of pageants today. We learned about ourselves, our university, each other, and of course, what beauty is to each of us. Though it was a pageant, there is so much more that goes into the competition. Interviews, putting together an effective platform, having a professional presentation, and constructing it all into a show for the entire university to see. Consider this. When looking at pageants, especially on HBCU campuses, history, presentation, and dignity all go into being the face of your university, not just being a pretty face. Thanks, Kyla. Paul Holston. Earlier this week, I spoke with my mother on the phone talking about the catastrophic damages from Hurricanes Irma and Maria that have occurred in her native land of Puerto Rico. While our family members that reside there are doing okay, the rest of the island is still living in chaos, and she is still in shock and disbelief. Puerto Rico Governor Ricardo Rosello called the damages a humanitarian disaster that involves 3.4 million U.S. citizens. Water, food, and fuel are scarce. Power in many areas of the island have been out for weeks, and it doesn't help that President Donald Trump said he may pull back federal relief workers from Puerto Rico. As a fellow Puerto Rican journalist, I feel that it's important for the media to continue to report on this unfortunate pandemonium that's happening in Puerto Rico. For those that do not know what is happening, consider this. Puerto Rico is a part of the United States. Do not forget your fellow Americans who desperately need your help. In any way that you can, please support in helping my fellow Puerto Ricans recover and rebuild their lives. Thanks for listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows podcast. This show is produced by Aaron Matthewson. Tony Chow and Martin Onable are in the control room. Special thanks to David Cummings. Get all of the HBCU 468 podcasts as well as All Day. What are those? And Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast. And don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everybody.